Please, if you would, open up a copy of God's Word to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. We're going to begin in verse 10 this morning. Exodus 34, 10. You know, we're, we're in the process. You may find this hard to believe, but we are in the process of bringing this book of Exodus to a close. We've got this week, and then next week we will finish up all the way to chapter 40. You know, as I've said in the past, I, I think Exodus, this whole book, is kind of like you take the book of Romans out of the New Testament and you place it in the Old Testament context, and that's, that's what it's, it's like. I, and what I mean by that is that uh, the book of Exodus really lays bare for us, uh, really for the first time in this complete way in God's Word, what it means to, to know the Lord, uh, to love Him, to be loved by Him. Uh, this book through and through is about salvation, but it's about salvation in the context of a people who have been saved unto the Lord. Remember, they were delivered out of Egypt and by the Lord and unto Him. And that's, if you think about it, that's exactly what we need, isn't it? And so we should be asking the question, what does it look like to, to come to God, uh, to know God, to know this salvation, and, and then to, to walk in this salvation? If we take the book of Exodus seriously, then we're going to know it's not an easy thing. <laughs> you see the struggles that the people had, even when they had all these resources given to us. We might look at all that they had. They had the Red Sea that was parted. Uh, they, had the, they saw the, the plagues. They saw God at work. And we might say, we wouldn't have doubt then. That would be easy. We would follow the Lord without a problem. But you know what? We look at them, then we look at ourselves, we look at the resources God has given us today, and we do the same thing, don't we? Uh, we continue to uh, go this way or go over to this way rather than following that straight and narrow path with the Lord. And so we need the answers to these questions that are being given to them. And that's what we see here throughout the book. And I and I think certainly in this chapter, in chapter 34, we, we see this in a, in a wonderful way. I, you know, I almost see this chapter, that we're, the part that we're going over today, as being sort of like an exclamation point that's being placed over everything that we've been over in the book of Exodus up to this point. It's kind of like God's final stamp upon this, uh, this book where He says, yes, it's really true. I really am faithful to my promises. And yes, there really is a mediator through whom all of this, who makes all of it possible. And so having said that, I, I just want to real briefly, and I'll make it short, but I want to briefly summarize what we've been through and witnessed up to this point. If you remember first few chapters, it was God raising up a, a man who was to be a mediator. We had that uh, in the man Moses. And he had to be there first, if you think about it, because everything that happened with the people of Israel, with the children of Israel, was through Moses. We can see that now as we look back. Uh, and there was that point at which, around chapter 12 or so, 
where, and, and leading up to that, a point in time where God took this people and He, he became their God, truly their God, and their, He became a God and King over them. Uh, and there, there was a certain mediator, Moses, that God used to deliver this people out of the hands of their enemies and to bring them to himself. And you remember how he did it through wondrous signs. He did part the Red Sea. The, the plagues were there, water out of a rock, manna coming down out of the heavens. Uh, and he was demonstrating through and through his commitment to them and his care to them. And then he formalized this relationship. Chapters 19 through about... Uh, 31. He formalized this relationship. We call it a, a covenant that he made with them. And remember, he told them how to uphold their side of the covenant. Uh, he gave them, chapter 20, we spent a long time going through that. He gave them his law. And then what did they do straight away? They sinned a great sin against him. They were guilty of, and it truly was this, of spiritual adultery. And so then, they suffered the consequences of that. And remember, Moses came down from the mountain and he took the tablets that had the law on them and he threw them on the ground and they were shattered to pieces. And it represented that covenant that they had broken. But then, remember what happened. Somebody stepped in. Moses, the mediator, stepped in on behalf of the people. And he interceded for them before the Lord. And what we're getting to see this morning is the full fruit of what Moses did as he stepped in. Now we're going to enter into this story at a point at which, once again, Moses has gone to the top of Mount Sinai. He's entered into the cloud. You know, I think you know, many times he went up there. But there were two times in particular, this time and one other, when he spent 40 days and 40 nights up on top of the mountain. Uh, and remember, during that entire time, he was, he was fasting. He was out without food. He was without water. Uh, so you can imagine what an intense time he spent with the Lord. Now, the first time, remember what happened. He came down from the mountain. He had the tablets. He witnessed the great sin of the people with a golden calf, and he smashed the tablets at, at the bottom of the mountain. This time, very different. What you'll see in this passage, he comes down from the mountain, but there's a completely different uh, reaction. One other difference I'd like to point out uh, before we read this is that when he was up on the mountain, remember he had prayed that request of the Lord, show me your glory. And now in this passage, you're going to see a difference from before, the results of that request to the Lord. The Lord did show him. His glory, what he could handle. And so we're going to see a difference in Moses, in his demeanor. Now, as I read this passage, and it is, it is pretty lengthy. Uh, I thought about just kind of summarizing it, but we do need to read through this, I think. So it's uh, chapter 34, verse 10, all the way through chapter 35, verse 3. Uh, but you'll see as we go th through it that... It draws upon the Old Testament ceremonial law, which can be hard for us to understand and apply to ourselves. Uh, and so I'd just like for you to keep in mind as we read this that this was simply how the people were to show love and obedience to the Lord. 
Think about it in those terms. We have our own ways that the Lord has called us to show love and obedience. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, the ceremonial law, this was theirs. Uh, so that will help. So again, chapter 34, beginning in verse 10, just notice those first few words that he makes. Wonderful words where he says, I am making a covenant. Uh, he, he is reaffirming, the Lord is reaffirming. I'm continuing in this. I am faithful despite your unfaithfulness. And that's what we need from the Lord as well. Uh, Chapter 34, verse 10. And he, the Lord God, said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among you, among whom you are, shall see the work of the Lord. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, cut down their asherim, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Verse 18, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine. All your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb. Or, if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out the nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until morning. The best of the firstfruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. 
And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near to him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Please join me as we look to the Lord. Father, we thank you for this word uh, this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the relationship that we are able to have with you. We see that all the way through your word. And we look at it this morning. And yet, Lord, there, there are some difficult things that are here to, to fit, to understand, to apply to ourselves. And so I pray that you would open our eyes and open our ears to be able to see and to take this as the Word of God and to apply it to ourselves in a right way, in a way that's in accordance with your truth. And help us, therefore, Lord, uh, to better know how to walk in our relationship with you and to live our lives uh, here upon the earth and until we are able to look to glory. Uh, we thank you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, there was a, there was a point several years after Amy and I were married when our marriage hit a rough spot. And it was a, it was a really rough spot. Now, I'm not going to get into details about what we went through, but I will say that even though it seemed to us that we loved one another from the point that we were you know, married in, uh, just outside of Lexington, Kentucky, and, and then continued uh, forward for several years, we thought that we loved one another. Uh, whereas, in fact, we came to understand at this point and it really was mutual, that neither of us had been good at all at showing love to one another. And so through our difficulties, through the challenges that we went through at this point in time, we became motivated to ask 
the question, a very valuable question. Uh, I was asking, how is it that I, Amy's husband, really show love to her? How do I love her? And she was asking the same question about me. Now, that's not a minor question to ask. I know some will say, well, it should just come naturally. But we came to discover it doesn't. And among several helpful books that were given to us at the time to help out, there was one that really dealt with this particular type of help. Uh, You may have heard of it before. I think it's been reprinted and it's available today. But it was called The Five Love Languages. The Secret, this is the subtitle, The Secret to Love That Lasts. And I know that sounds a little bit cheesy there. But it really, we, we found it to be very valuable. The premise of the book is that what you may think shows love to your spouse may not, in actuality, do that at all. Now, one uh, small example for us here who are husbands, uh, you may think that bringing flowers to your wife on a regular basis will show her love. But in fact, and she may not even share this with you, it's hard to, to say no to something like that, but in fact, it, it, may, it may do nothing for her. She may have re- no real desire for flowers. On the other hand, being present with her, I mean really present with her, uh, when she shares with you about her, her trials and her troubles during the day, Uh, something that out of you may take time, may take real communication, empathy, that may be for her the thing that shows love, that says, I love you. And so being in tune with how the other person experiences love, what this book called love language, that's important. But I will say for Amy and I, uh, what was even more important that more important than just the specific approach that this book took with uh, igniting passion within a marriage was this, that we finally came to a point at which we were concerned about it. We finally came to a point at which we were thinking intentionally and saying, I want to know how do I love her? And she would say the same about me. Think about how marriage often begins. Uh, There is, this is often the case, there's this intense, uh, ultimately short-lived passion that's there between the man and the woman. Uh, And when that is the foundation, then one of two things is likely going to happen. One, the marriage won't last. That's one. The other, uh, the two will come and come to uh, cohabitate where there's no ongoing steadfast love that's there for one another. That's something that we call, there at the beginning, we call it infatuation. It doesn't continue. It doesn't last. There's, there's not a basis for an ongoing marital relationship. But marriage, as God has designed it, requires thinking intentionally about how to love the other. And here's the key to that. Because marriage is a covenant relationship. It's not just one way. It can't be just one way. It must be both 
and. And that requires intentionality. It often requires setting yourself aside and thinking, well, how instead of taking care of me, how do I take care of and please the other person? Now, the reason for going all this through all this, it is important in marriage. But the real reason is that when it comes to the Lord, in the same way, we are in a covenant relationship. And we may know, we may depend upon with the Lord that He is gracious and that He is merciful and that He grants us forgiveness of our sins and He is compassionate and He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. All of that is, is wonderful. And that's a foundation upon which we stand. But even so, we need to be reminded the covenant is not one way. The Lord is not looking for a bride who will just be there and who just receives, but who does not really love Him and show love to Him. And so we're reminded in God's Word that the Lord, what the Lord wants and will have is a bride who is enraptured with Him, who, who cares about Him and wants to know how do I show love to the Lord? Uh, so that there is a passion there, there is a dedication to Him, and ultimately, a love that carries on and on. Now, the danger is, of course, that we just sort of coast through this relationship. Sort of like, to be honest, Amy and I did through our first X number of years uh, in marriage. Just sort of coast thinking that we were okay, thinking somehow that I really am loving the other person, whereas in fact we weren't. But the key is that question. Do we want to know how to love Him? Do we want to know if you'll allow me this? Do we want to know how to speak His love language? And that's really what this passage is all about. It comes just after the people have committed a great sin, Against their Lord, they have been apostate. Remember, I called it spiritual adultery. You can think about marriage and what that represents. And yet, because of the mediator who stepped in, the Lord is continuing in this covenant relationship. You know, when we come to faith in Christ, and we're His, and He is ours, we will stumble, and we will fall into sin. But we can know that He is faithful. And He has said, I will take your guilt and I will take your sin upon Myself. And you will receive My forgiveness and My grace, which knows no limits. And what a promise we have. But when we are in a covenant relationship, it's not just one way. God takes us to be His people and therefore, we must take Him to be our God. That means we need to love Him in return. The question is, how? How do we love Him in return? And so, if you think about it in that context, isn't that an important question for us to answer for ourselves? Well, that's answered in this chapter. He's teaching us here what it takes to stay in covenant 
love with Him? How do we love Him? How do we keep this covenant? Well, one of the ways that we see right there at the beginning is we must flee from worldliness. We see that in verses 11 through 17. God is telling His people again, here's how you love me. And I I just want us to recognize as we go through this entire passage that here, God is only giving us what is absolutely necessary. There are many ways that we have to love Him, but remember what's just happened. That This people have shown apostasy toward Him, and now He's saying to them as He brings them back into covenant fellowship, here is how you must love me. And so we need to listen to these words. There are no wasted words here. Uh, and what He says here is, you must not take your eyes off of me and put them on another. And remember, that's exactly what they had done. Now, that's what these verses are about. The, the Lord says to Moses, if you look at verse 11, He says, tell the people this. Uh, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you. And then He lists their enemies, that when they go into the land, this is what they're going to experience. And he says, I will drive out your enemies from the land. But the implication is, and we see this later as we go through uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, and into Joshua. That's, that's really the place uh, that we see that this will take time for the enemies to be driven out. Uh, and It requires that the people trust in God during that time. And the Lord knows the people, and He knows their temptation. And so look at what He says in verse 12. So during this time, take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. He's saying to them, there will be temptation. For you to involve yourselves with this people, with that people, uh, intimately, do not mix with them, because if you do, you will take their gods as your God. And notice, what he's saying is, if that happens, you can't love me. You can't do both. You can't have two masters. Now, Again, I just want to remind us of all that has happened. You've got the golden calf incident, spiritual uh, adultery. Uh, and the Lord, after that, He had rescued them, uh, or prior to that, He had rescued them out of slavery and out of misery. He had bound Himself to them, and He had shown His love to them in all these ways. But there was no depth in their relationship. It had never really been tested you, know, you think it's the same thing with, uh, with two young people who come together in marriage, right? They share their vows with one another. There are stars in their eyes as they're sharing those vows. And they say, I do. But do they really? They don't truly know at this point what covenant love is. They can't get it. It's never been tested. They don't know really how to love the other person. Covenant love is exclusive. You can only have eyes for one. And it's now that Israel has fallen, now that Israel has broken that commandment, they have had eyes for another. 
it's now that they should be motivated to ask, really with tears in their eyes, uh, with a groan in their heart, they should ask, how do I love the Lord? And the Lord's answer to that is, have eyes for me and for me alone. You know, the implication of this is clear for us. That the Lord promises that when you enter into a relationship with Him, and it must, we know, go through the mediator, must go through the Lord Jesus Christ. When you enter into that relationship and you follow Him, you will have a different orientation to sin. Because the Lord will clear it out. Just like the inhabitants in the land, He said He would clear out their enemies. He will clear out the sin. But not all at once. And in this life, never completely. So what do we have to do? We've got to fight with it. We've got to contend with that sin. And the warning here is, don't let any of those temptations that are going to be there, don't let them pull you away from the Lord. Remember what we read uh, earlier, uh, our confession of, of sin. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Notice, it's either one or the other. If anyone loves the world, you can't love the Father. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. He's saying you must have eyes for one. So the question is, who do you love? Well, what are some of the temptations that we face? Now, there are many. There are many, and each one of us are different. We are pulled by different temptations. But just to mention a couple that are common for us, you know, one that comes to mind because of where we live uh, is, and it's addressed often biblically, is money and the things that money can buy. You know, money can be either a blessing or it can be a curse. And money is only truly a blessing when we have it. When we treat it like we are stewards of it. In other words, it's not really ours. We're holding on loosely to it. It's given to us for a purpose, for the Lord's purpose to use it. Otherwise, what do we do with that money? It becomes ours and we want to build up our barns greater and greater. They can be either a, a curse or it can be a blessing. You know, in First Timothy chapter 6, the Lord says, or, or uh, He says through Paul, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And notice it doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. Abraham was one of the, the, the richest men in his day. It says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The question is, do you hold on to it loosely? Do you manage it well? Uh, do you spend more toward world missions than you do toward taking care of your pets? You know, the, the questions are questions that probe the heart. Are you loving the Lord? Is He exclusively yours? What's another temptation that we face? A tough one in, in our day. I think it's been a tough one. You can go back to the first century. This was a challenge for them in the first century. Politics. You know, the issues are important. 
We need to know them. We need to understand them. We need to be engaged. We need to vote. But here's the question. Are you on an emotional high when one party has some wins? Or extremely low when, another, when the other party makes gains? Here's the question. Isn't the Lord in control in all of those things? Again, it's a question of our affections. Is this the thing that pulls at our heartstrings? The thing that is beginning to control us? Does it produce anxiety in me or perhaps anger in me? It's just a sign to watch out for. As with any of the other temptations that we can have in this, in this life. If you look back at our passage of, in verse 14, it's very straightforward. The Lord says, For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. You know, the Lord is telling Moses that He fiercely loves those who are His. That He has redeemed us and He has made us His. And He will not allow our loyalty to be given to another. Whether it's a person, an individual, who might pull us away from Christ. What about pornography? You know, if you are a man here and you look on a regular basis at pornography, I can tell you one thing. You cannot love the Lord at the same time. You cannot. You can't have both at the same time. And therefore, there are helps for that, but the one thing that you've got to say is no more. And so I'd encourage you to come talk to me. We have resources for that. But that's one, of the, that's one of the temptations that is drawing people away from the Lord and away from His church today. Again, what the Lord's saying is, you must have eyes for me and for me alone. So the question is that He's posing to us, do you love me? Have you reserved your praise and your adoration and your worship for me and for me alone? You know, this leads us to the second item. If we love the Lord, first of all, by emptying ourselves of everything that is not of Him, fill ourselves with then. You know, if we first love the Lord by fleeing from worldliness, then secondly, he says, we love the Lord when we run to worship. Now, we find this in verses 18 through 27, and then a little bit beginning of chapter 35. Now, again, the Lord is giving us here instructions in how to remain in love with Him, in this covenant relationship, an ongoing relationship with Him. You know, in the prior verses, God had told the, the people what not to do, what to stay away from. Well, this is different. Here He's telling the people what they must do. This section, really, if it gets down to it, is all about love and celebration and remembering and thanksgiving and resting in the Lord. You know, it's here that the Lord provides His people with an order of worship, a way to fill their hearts with Him. So first, He teaches about regular corporate worship. You know, once in the land, they were to go up. Now, this was going to be once they made it to the land. You can go to the book of Joshua. You'll see it there. 
once they made it, they were to go up three times a year, three different feasts or festivals. Uh, and they're named here. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Ingathering, or sometimes called later the Feast of Booths. Now, this was a time that was taken out of their regular schedule, and they would take a week, and they'd set it aside, dedicated to the Lord. They would come together eventually in Jerusalem. And the purpose was to rest in the Lord's provision, to learn from Him, to remember how the Lord cares for them and and has loved them, and to celebrate God with thankful hearts. Uh, The first feast, it was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was to remind them of their deliverance, how they had been delivered out of the hands of their enemies in Egypt and brought to the Lord and provided for by Him. Now, the other two feasts that are mentioned, they cover both the beginning and the end of the time of harvest. Very important time. Without harvest, they didn't eat. Uh, And so this was to remind them that they weren't left on their own, that the Lord was their security, that He was their provider, and that He was their refuge. And you know, as they focused upon these things, it was to generate within them a response, a significant part of their giving. I'm sorry, a significant part of their worship was, it was giving, and specifically giving of the first fruits, giving of the first fruits of their harvest we see here. Uh, You'll also see giving of the first fruit of their livestock, of their animals, and even the first fruit of their sons. Uh, They were to give their first son to the Lord, and typically the practice was that it was, their, their son was redeemed with money, or in some cases, the, Lord, the, the child was dedicated to the Lord. Think about Samuel, First Samuel. Samuel, at a young age, he was dedicated to the Lord. He was in the temple given to serve the Lord. Uh, but the point here is that this was significant in their worship before the Lord, that they would have a heart of giving. And through this, they were demonstrating their dependence upon the Lord and seeing that He is the Lord of the harvest. Uh, So part of this was to remind them about the facts of their salvation. And the other part was for them to respond with a heart of joy and thanksgiving. All of it built into a regular structure. Think, they had these feasts happening throughout the year. They were to go up. Regular structure. And then when you add to that the Sabbath day, you can see that mentioned in verse 21. Uh, six days and then one day. The seventh day you shall rest. Rest Down in chapter 35, verses 1 to 3, uh, talks about the Sabbath. Six days of work shall be done, but the seventh day, a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord all the day. Uh, think about this pattern that was being built up for the people. This wasn't just so that they would teach themselves and teach their children about worship. This was so that it would be ingrained in them, so that as they went through their lives, they would in their minds and their hearts begin to think more and more and more about the Lord and about His provision for them and about how He has given them all that they need for life and for godliness And then when it came to obedience to Him, 
and to service before Him, notice that would never be something that would be outward and detached and forced. It would be, merely be something that would grow out of this heart of worship that they had, a heart that knows Him, a heart that loves Him. And so remember, that's what all of this is about. It's all about the Lord asking the question, do you love me? And Him showing them, this is my love language, this is how. Now, as we think about applying this to ourselves, I want to put out, point out that these feasts were smack dab in the middle of one of the most important seasons for them, the harvest season. This was an important time, yet they were to take, on both ends of the harvest, a week out and dedicate it to looking to the Lord and feasting before Him. Uh, the same with the Sabbath that, that was happening regularly. I think we often look back and we think, well, that's something that, that they did. But today, you know, I, I ask the question, you know, one day out of, out of seven that you're asking me to dedicate to the Lord? I've got, it's on the weekend. It's when all kinds of things are, are happening and uh, other things are coming into my life. And if, if I don't give myself over to those, I won't have time to do them you know what? The exact same thing was true for them. The Israelites had the same issue. But what we see here is that the Lord did this intentionally. Because this is what shows love to Him. And it's the same for us today. The Lord says, come and enjoy me. Satisfy yourself with me. Learn about me. Remind yourself about what I have done. You know, Isaiah 55, I think, says this well. Why do, you, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. Notice, that's what covenant love is. This is how the Lord says that you love me. It's by being in this regular pattern in which we're coming before the Lord, not just by ourselves, but as families coming before the Lord so that generations learn. This is what it's like to be in the Lord's presence. This is what it's like to rest in Him, not just in ourselves, not just in our own works, not just in our own enjoyments but to truly rest in Him. This is what's right. This is what's good. And it continues on and on, generation after generation. This is, this is what the Lord has given us in order to love Him. So two, two ways. One, flee. Flee from that which is not of God. Flee from worldliness. The other, worship. Enjoy Him. Give yourself, fill yourself with the Lord. One more way I'd like to briefly go over that's given here by which we love the Lord, and it's this. Not only flee from worldliness, not only run to worship, but we manifest His glory in our lives. Now, while these other two areas that we've talked about here, they're absolutely necessary. We can't love the Lord without doing these things. But perhaps the best way to love the Lord 
and the most effective way to light a fire underneath us so that it continues on and on and on in a relationship that is a true covenant relationship to keep us alive for the Lord. It comes as a result of a life that's lived in faithful service to the Lord, and it comes as we experience and as we see this God of glory so that we ourselves are able to more and more begin to show off or reflect or manifest that glory to the world around us and to bask in it ourselves. You know, we got an interesting account here. Uh, this, it begins in verse 29, Moses coming down from the mountain, uh, and he's, uh, he has been up there speaking to the Lord face to face, Remember, he had done that before for 40 days and 40 nights, but this time is different. Uh, remember when he, or if you look now, when he comes down from the mountain, he doesn't break the two tablets of Ten Commandments. But he goes and he addresses first the leaders, and they come to him. They want to hear what has the Lord uh, shared with you for us. And then all the people gather around Moses and listen to all that he has, he has commanded them through Moses. There is here an eagerness to hear and to take as their mediator comes to share with them. But the thing that really stands out in this passage that's different from before, we see it again and again mentioned here, it's in Moses' appearance. His face is shining. Can you imagine being there? And Moses comes down from the mountain and his, his face is just radiating almost like the sun and he's in front of you? Well, what were their reactions? Well, first of all, it was fear. Uh, we don't understand this. And what do you do when you don't understand something? You, you turn and you run from it. But where had this come from? Remember, Moses had been with the Lord like he had been before, but he had asked that important question. A burning question. Show me your glory. And now in the context of his faithful service, this can be seen to others that the Lord did indeed show him his glory. Uh, Moses not only experienced the glory of God, but now he reflects that glory to the world around him. Uh, and as you might expect, this is what made the people afraid at first. It's shown here to be so bright that Moses had to put a veil over his face uh, so that the, the other people, it seems, weren't blinded by it. Now, the passage that we read earlier out of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 helps us with understanding this. Now, in short, Moses was able to experience the glory of the Lord. Uh, he, he wanted it. And the Lord granted his wish. And so that's the reason that he was able to experience this. He longed to know the glory of the Lord. Uh, and so in these 40 days and 40 nights that he spent up on the mountain, it must have been the most glorious time ever in the presence of the Lord. So that when he came down, this was a part of his visual appearance. But the people, think about the people. They only got to see that reflection of God's glory. They weren't up there with Moses. It was Moses who knew the Lord in this intimate setting. 
They didn't get to know that. Their knowledge of the Lord was lacking. They even had a veil that separated them from the reflection of this glory. And so by and large, what we see with the people as you continue on is that they continued with a hardened heart toward the Lord. That should make us think. A hardened heart toward the Lord. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it helps us to understand that we are able to be in a different place. Now think, the elements of the covenant are the same. God's law is the same. The people themselves, are our hearts are the same. And yet, here it is, the nearness of the presence of God that all of the people are able to experience today is completely different from in that day. It's far greater. What makes the difference? Well, look at, uh, this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 16. It says, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The veil is removed. The Spirit is present. Like Moses, we are able to experience that nearness to the Lord and therefore to experience the Lord's glory. We are able to turn to Christ through the mediator and receive Him and also at that same time receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who brings into us the glory of God in Christ Jesus. That's what's found here, and and I'll read a little bit further in verse 18. It says, And we all, with unveiled face, that's talking about the ability to, to see God, to recognize God, to walk with God, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He is the enabler. He is the one who brings to us the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't come all at once, though. As we walk with the Lord, and as we, in faithful service to Him, continue in this relationship with the Lord, more and more and more, we're able to experience the very glory of the Lord But this becomes the thing that will more and more kindle our relationship with Him and our walk with Him like no other. You know, I think you can recognize this in certain people who, like Moses, they manifest the glory of the Lord having walked in faithful service with Him, having known Him in this close relationship. Uh, Even if it's through a book or other, other means, we can recognize this. Uh, you can sense that they've been in the presence of the Lord. And you begin to want that more and more for yourself. You know, I heard a, it was a podcast earlier this week with a man by the name of Jeffrey Thomas. You may or may not recognize his name. He's a pastor in, in Wales. And he's been pastoring the same church for over 50 years. And he's, he's finally stepped down from the pastorate. But all that time, he's been walking with the Lord faithfully. He's been, he's been sharing with the people. And I could just hear in his voice, as he, as he spoke, as he talked about some of the things that had happened, the people, the other saints, the other people who know the Lord and love the Lord that he had walked with, 
I could just hear the presence of God in his voice. I could, it was like I could see the, the shining of his face, the glory of God that's shining forth. Maybe you've seen that in someone. Uh, maybe you've known that in someone. That's something that we should seek after. And I'll tell you, we, we have put on the, the cart in the back biographies. Biographies of people who we specifically thought through, people who have, have known the Lord, who have walked with the Lord, who manifest this kind of glory. And what a gift it is to be able to read about their lives. This man I was talking about, Jeffrey Thomas, he wrote an autobiography. And uh, it's coming to us. It'll be in the library soon, but we've got some of those uh, back there now. You know, in, in the interview uh, with Jeffrey Thomas, uh, he, he had exuding out of him uh, the love for God. Uh, a love for the rock of his salvation. That's actually uh, the name of, uh, of the book, Rock of His Salvation. Uh, that's something that we should desire for ourselves. And as we walk with the Lord more and more in faithful service with Him and paying attention to these other two things, fleeing from worldliness, truly worshiping the Lord, filling ourselves with Him, paying attention to the routine that He has put into place, we will more and more know the glory of God. And if you have experienced the glory of God that we, we can get from opening up God's Word and our eyes are opened to, to see and to understand who He really is and who He is to us, then it changes the way that you think about your life. It changes the way that you approach your decision-making. It changes the way you dedicate yourself fully to Him. And so I just encourage us uh, to continue on in faithfulness, doing these things and asking that question, Lord, how do I love you? How do I show you love? Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank You that You have invested us with the resources that we have uh, Lord, we thank You that You have given us Your Word, the truth of Your Word. We thank You that You have given us Your Spirit, that our eyes can be opened to see and to understand, to recognize Your Word, to apply it to ourselves. We thank You that You have given us the community of faith, and You have given us others who have been walking with You for many years, and that we can see in their lives and in their hearts and in their minds Your presence the glory of God. And, and I pray, Lord, that you would help us to take advantage of that which you have given. Help us to have that desire that Moses had that says, show me your glory. Uh, we thank you and uh, we look to you now in Jesus' name. Amen.